Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In late 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a policy statement entitled Ensuring Comprehensive Care and Support for Transgender and Gender Diverse Children and Adolescents. According to the AAP, this statement, quote, reviews the latest research and provides recommendations that focus specifically on children who identify as transgender or gender diverse, end quote. But while the AAP statement purported to be based on the, quote, latest research, end quote, experts in the field were surprised to see that the recommendations essentially boiled down to the idea of peer affirmation. In other words, the AAP recommended that doctors who are presented with a child who believes he or she is transgender should always respond by affirming that child's belief in their new gender identity. While that policy is no doubt rooted in compassionate attitudes, experts in the field noted that it contradicted four decades of research showing that prepubescent children who present as trans revert to their biological sex-based gender in two-thirds of cases, which is why professional clinicians generally follow a policy that is not based on pure affirmation, but is instead based on a protocol informally dubbed watchful waiting. One of the experts who expressed alarm about the AAP policy statement was Toronto-based clinical psychologist and sexologist James Cantor. In fact, Dr. Cantor went through the AAP policy statement footnote by footnote and was shocked to see that the AAP authors justified their radical policy shift based on what appears to be a systematic misrepresentation of the available research. And in a new peer-reviewed paper published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy on December 14th, Dr. Cantor steps readers through the errors and misrepresentations contained in the AAP statement. As of this recording, on December 23rd, the AAP has not responded. Last week, I visited Dr. Cantor's office to speak to him about his research, about his takedown of the AAP policy paper, and more generally about the interplay between sex research and gender politics, including the subject of autogynephilia, which Dr. Cantor described as positively, quote, radioactive. Here are excerpts from our discussion. So we're here at the Toronto Sexuality Centre in downtown Toronto. Who are the types of clients or patients, I don't know what word you prefer, who you usually see as part of your everyday clinical practice? Generally, we use the word clients. The kind of clients we see really run the whole gamut. Some are what I would call regular everyday sexual function problems. People uh, orgasm too fast or not at all. People having trouble getting aroused, erection difficulties, uh, lubrication difficulties, and so on. We also get a lot of people coming in as couples with, as I say, relatively mainstream couples kinds of complaints, lots of constant fighting, and of course, lots of disagreements in the, uh, in the bedroom. But we get many, many more of the uh, unusual cases that most clinics don't see. People, for example, struggling with some kind of an atypical sexual interest pattern. One of them has a kink or a fetish that they're 
sometimes just learning to deal with themselves. Paraphilia, as it's sometimes known? The word paraphilia, the technical term, were to apply to some of these. And then there continues to be debate in science over exactly where the line draws. So I find, even though as a scientist I use the word very readily and very carefully, I find I don't use the word really that often with clients themselves. So mostly what they want to know is where it came from, Is it going to change? Is it healthy, unhealthy? Do they need to suppress it? Or what hopefully happens are to find healthy ways to embrace, indulge, and celebrate, and enjoy whatever their sexual interest pattern is. Do you ever have straight clients who they say to you, well, as a gay man, maybe you're not going to understand my problem? No. If anything, I get the reverse. I get people kind of guessing that I would naturally have some idea of what it's like to be different, to have some secret that I couldn't tell anybody, and that the basis of it is some sexual thing making it even more secretive and going through the same kind of myths that everybody else has for why am I different? Was there something, uh, the way my parents treated me, was there something I was exposed to? Was it masturbating during some random exposure to some stimulus? We all go through the same, is this my fault? Is it going to change? Is this some daring thing about me? Am I unlovable and destined to lead a lonely life? So the emotional impact on us is very, very simple, even though they're motivated by different ways that we're different from everybody else. This fear that people have that what makes them different will also render them unlovable or isolated. Uh, do you see this in people who present as gender diverse? That's a very interesting question. I get to meet gender diverse people in, in any of several different ways. Of the ones who come in clinically, that's not really their question. Usually they're coming in for the appropriate assessment or support during a transition process, or they're exploring the idea of transitioning or in transitioning in certain spheres of life, maybe not all of them. Uh, so some will come in for somebody objective to help them double check their thinking and for input and advice. So those are usually the ones who come in for clinical questions. Because it is so widely talked about now, and there are so many people, I'll say, offering information, whether that information is accurate or not, I don't get people coming in with the same level of isolation that historically the gay community had and many other sexual atypicalities have. Because the, I'll say, modern era for gender diversity has really come during a social media era. It's been easy, some would even say too easy, to contact groups in order to find people with whom to share whatever aspect of it. Of the people that I meet in my day-to-day -day life who happen to be trans, they're not going through the particular throes of a depression or anything else. They, they by and large, have adjusted to it by then. And of the activists I hear from, they're usually contacting me with a very specific image of what they think the trans community is, who they think they are, and that I have absolutely no right to have any other image or to describe any other perception. The article in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy that we're discussing is called Transgender and Gender Diverse Children and Adolescents Fact-Checking of AAP Policy. Before we get into the AAP, I'd like to ask, does your clinical practice focus at all on children per se, or is that a big part of what you do? No, clinically we only see adults, uh, late adolescents aged 16 and up. My awareness of the literature is, of course, as a scientist, I study the development of sexual identity and, and gender identity, and so I, I'm known for following that. But clinically, I only work with adults. The AAP document, my lay understanding of this is that it was a sort of editorial put out by the AAP institutionally. 
Do we know who wrote it? Is there the name of a person that we can attach to this? The name of the person who's listed as first author, first name slips my mind, last name is Rafferty. So uh, Rafferty probably composed the bulk of the text. The other people who are listed as authors are actually whole committees, and then in a footnote it lists the members of those committees. But, but just so I'm straight on this, it's not your typical published journal paper in the sense that there are, are X, Y, and Z authors and they speak for themselves. Uh, and there was nothing in it that indicated it underwent any kind of peer review process. But this purports to be the institutional expression of advice from the AAP, is that correct? That's certainly how it reads. I don't know what the formal process within the AAP is in order to pass these. Usually they are uh, proposed or presented by whatever subcommittee and then they're endorsed by the board of directors from the, from the association. So it does have the association official endorsement, but I don't know what kind of process they use in order to get that. It's not merely an editorial whose opinions are unique to the authors of it. So before we get into the idea of gender affirmation, which is very much the recommendation that comes out of this AAP report, let's talk about the policy baseline, which you describe here as watchful waiting. That's watchful waiting in regard to the gender self-identification of a presenting child or adolescent. You describe this as being the consensus among many medical professionals who deal with this area? Watchful waiting, really, it's a nickname. It's not a term of art in the medical profession. Exactly. It's really just a nickname that was used to what clinics in general were doing at the time. Research on this issue dates back 40 years-ish. And in study after study, there have now been uh, roughly a dozen of them in total, and they all found exactly the same thing. And these are studies of children or adolescents who presented as gender diverse, and the studies included follow-up analysis of what happened to their gender self-conception over the years. Could you summarize what the bulk of these studies indicated? There have been roughly a dozen studies of kids who presented before puberty as desiring to live life as the other gender. And in study after study, it was unanimous across them. The majority of these kids ceased to want to transition by puberty. By the time puberty hits, most of them settle into their natal sex, and the majority of them just turn out to be gay or lesbian. And so this is one of the reasons that watchful waiting, as you describe it here, became a popular or established clinical practice because I'm guessing professionals didn't want to take steps to affirm a new gender if, if they knew there was a good chance that there would be a desistance to the natal gender following adolescence. Is that correct? Exactly. We saw a very mixed result. If we were seeing things like 95% versus 5%, we would have a pretty good idea of what to prepare for and to make that transition as easy as possible. So the AAP recommends not watchful waiting, but something called gender affirmation. What is gender affirmation? Again, gender affirmation is a nickname. It uh, uh, essentially just means going along with and affirming the kid and treating the kid socially in, in the new gender. Some people will say that counts even if the kid wants some kind of an unusual or unique gender or some kind of mixed set of gender characteristics. But in general, it's used for acknowledging the kid having uh, changed socially, changing names, changing pronouns, and so on. The AAP article, as part of its analysis... It divided clinical approaches into three types. Uh, one was gender affirmation, which the AAP came down on the side of. Two was watchful waiting, which we've spoken about a little bit here. Uh, and a third was conversion therapy. Most people are probably more familiar with that in the context of uh, gay men and gay women. 
Could you discuss what the AAP means by conversion therapy in this context and some of the citation issues they get into when they try to apply that to the gender context? One of the problems is that there's no such thing as conversion therapy for gender identity. Conversion therapy was always about sexual orientation and always about adult sexual orientation. There are no studies, there are no examples, there are no treatment manuals about uh, trying to influence the gender identity of, uh, of children. It actually just makes no sense to try to talk about converting children because of what we know about the natural progression of these kids. This is in contradistinction to to sexual orientation where... Exactly. Adult sexual orientation is stable. Gay men and straight men do not spontaneously convert to each other. It it just doesn't happen. And conversion therapy in that context would be, well, we associate it with religious, perhaps Christian practices where the idea is that by force of will, you become straight. It originated and has always been highly associated with with religious conversion. Over time, part of its own real salespersonship, it tried to divorce itself as time went by from religious. But you can see how this analogy might be applied to to gender, though. I'm imagining that somebody, certainly somebody who, who wrote this document at the AAP, had in mind a person who has a very strong sense that they are trans and they present for clinical treatment and a therapist says to them, there's no such thing as trans. One can imagine an analogous form of conversion therapy for people who strongly present as trans, no? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, to a person who knows absolutely nothing about the science behind it, yeah, no, these things superficially do seem very, very analogous to each other. That's why I think it was such a terrible disappointment to see that a professional organization was making a layperson's mistake. But the AAP supplies plenty of citations in regard to insisting that conversion therapy is an established and useful concept in regard to adolescent or children transitioning to another gender. Yes, the, the, the papers that they cited to back up uh, uh, their statement was really when they started slipping from merely careless scholarship to, to something that starts to look much more like an active misinformation campaign. I know most of these articles. Several of them are classic articles in my field, and they simply did not say what the AAP claimed that they said. You go through them quite systematically. Yes. So much so that I was left wondering, has anybody else written about the fairly, as you describe it, systematic misrepresentation? No, it's been dead silent. There's been no response from the AAP itself. There's been little commentary elsewhere in the uh, literature. Among sex researchers, there's been an astonishment that there hasn't been a reaction. Uh, We're having this conversation, I guess it's been, what, a week since your article originally appeared? Uh, Appeared in print, yes. I I made the text of the material available online about a year ago, and it's only just now formally completed peer review and is now a formal peer-reviewed published article. And And for those listening, if they Google your name, James Cantor, and the Journal of Sex and marital therapy. I'm guessing they can get information about it. Did you say that the AAP has not responded to your critique? Not a word. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, 
anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. The political atmosphere, as you know, as our listeners know, is such that those who are not fully doctrinaire in support of the affirmation-based approach are sometimes accused of being transphobic. Yes, they're outright silenced, they're protested, they're deplatformed. So have you been accused of being transphobic? Oh, uh, yes, all the time. It's actually been a very strange trip for me. 20 years ago, for example, I was uh, I was vilified by the radical lesbian community. 20 years ago, the big discussions and what I was doing research on in those days was the biological basis of sexual orientation. And the research, uh, what I was saying was what the research said, but uh, sexual orientation is in the brain. Social constructionism was the big belief in those days. And a lot of women, and women's sexual orientation is distinct from male orientation. It's not as dichotomous for women as it is for men. But they, you know, based on their personal experience, often politically would say no one's sexual orientation is chosen because they have a feeling that theirs was not chosen. So I was the enemy of the radical lesbians of the time because I was an evil biological essentialist. Well, here we are 20 years later, and I am now the darling of the radical lesbians lesbian community because the science this time supports something that the radical lesbian community is uh, pointing out, which is essentially these kids should be let alone. They're kind of just gendered atypical. Most of them are going to turn out to be gay or lesbian. So just let that natural process unfold. I want to make sure that we're being clear about what this AAP article is advocating, what it's not advocating. Because you suggest in your article, your reading of the AAP's position, is that it is a fairly doctrinaire, universal application of affirmation-based therapy. Does this mean that a 10-year-old walking into a therapist's office who has the first stirrings of the idea that, hey, they're trans, am I getting this right, that this AAP document would recommend that that, that therapist go down the road of affirming that kid's self-conception? Yes, I, I can't see any other way to read the AAP document. But just not to be sensationalistic, I want to make sure, you know, the AAP is not saying get that kid onto an operating table and pump him full of drugs. Uh, that's not what they're advocating, I'm guessing. What they are advocating for is social transition, essentially upon demand. And I don't want to pretend that I have a one-size-fits-all, I-know-what-to-do-do-what-I-say-in-these-particular-cases either. I'm merely pointing out that these are highly complicated cases with lots of different things going on. Lots of different kids and families are motivated by lots of different things, and there is never going to be a one-size-fits-all policy. But that's what that policy is. It's saying of the different kinds of therapy, only one is available. Watchful waiting is a route to suicide. It's not that I'm saying that there should never be a kid who is permitted to transition. It's the shackling provided by this extremism in the policy, which is the big problem. So let's look at the AAP's critique of watchful waiting, because just to review, the AAP's typology is that there's conversion therapy, the affirmation model, which they like, we've talked about that. Their critique of watchful waiting is that 
among other things, using puberty as a dividing point is, in their words, quote, arbitrary. My understanding is that you went to the sources, including, I think, sources that they themselves cited, and found that using puberty as a dividing line was anything but arbitrary. Exactly. It simply showed that when the kids who, during adolescence, during their teens, those kids continued to have cross-gender feelings throughout life. That doesn't fade. But in the majority of the cases, roughly two-thirds-ish of the prepubescent ones ceased to feel it by puberty. Well, to me, that is the very definition of non-arbitrary. If that's not going to be how we find a dividing line, what is? But then the AAP lapsed into what you describe, and you make a strong case, circular logic about how they justify that arbitrary terminology. Could you describe that circularity? It's really only if you already believe that gender affirmation is the only thing that's appropriate for the kid, then the only thing that's getting delayed is the gender affirmation itself, which you have already decided was the only acceptable. So then any boundary line is going to be arbitrary because you've already decided that that's the best thing to do. So why why delay the inevitable, I suppose? Exactly. You said that the AAP has not responded to you. Have you received any public feedback from other professionals? The professional scientists, people who have been studying these kinds of issues for a long time, have been uniformly supportive. Nothing I said was really unknown or magical. The other kind of support I've gotten from the professionals was they're acknowledging these days it is not cool to contest the struggling for name. The trans establishment, the people in the trans community who are the most vocal and the most extreme. I don't think they genuinely represent the trans community. I, I think this is an important distinction to make because I, I know some trans people and they are they're nothing like the activists. Exactly. Uh, regular everyday trans people. And of course, I've known many of them long before the social media days. And, you know, they're everyday people who just kind of want to fade into the background and live their everyday lives. And are facing more challenges than most of the rest of us, because it is tough. It's tough enough to just fade into the background, especially for a person who does not themselves want to be the center of attention. Then there are other people who have an unhealthy need to be the center of attention. And gender issues serve as a wonderful way or very effective way, I should say, to accomplish that. So now all of a sudden it's become inappropriate, unhealthy, and nobody's allowed to question even the most extreme opinions. Now, I am perfectly happy to entertain extreme opinions, and when we have extremely good evidence, you know, I'm going to be the first person who who goes there. But really, I think we have overshot the target here. We've let the pendulum swing now to the other extreme. The best historical example I can think of would be now going back 25, 30 years. Recovered memory syndrome. Now, there was, of course, for many, many generations, and we still haven't completely dealt with it, people who were abused as children, and it never came to light. And it was only later when these people were in therapy that we came to realize just how widespread the sexual victimization of children was. And society started dealing with that. These people started coming out, getting help. We started dealing with perpetrators uh, more and more punitively. A lot of stuff was done in response. But the pendulum kept going. There were also people who, again, with an unhealthy need for attention, started claiming victimhood status when really they weren't victims. In the hands of well-meaning but uncritically-minded therapists, clients came to believe that they were abused even when they were not. 
And it was created by the same kind of situation, a genuine social recognition that, oh, we missed something. In that case, it was the sexual abuse. And in our desire to make up for that, we overshot the target. Fundamentally a well-intentioned phenomenon. Yes, these people are not, they're not evil. I understand where they're coming from. And a lot of the civil rights that my own community or communities and sister communities enjoy is exactly because of the mindsets of these people. I get contacted by parents of gender-diverse kids, and they will tell me it is now clear that there are some portions of the medical establishment where doctors feel more constrained by political ideology than by best clinical practices. You have said that you don't treat children. If somebody is listening to this, and I guess we're going to have to generalize because people listen to this all over the world, not just in Canada where we're speaking, what should they do? If they're a parent of a gender-diverse child and they want to do the best for that child, whether they end up trans or not trans, what's the first step? What should they do? My first two responses are non-scientific. To some people, they will be meaningful. To some people, they will be evading the question. But number one, I can't help but say it. Love your kid. No matter what the outcome is, the more your kid feels loved, the better the outcome is going to be. There is no one-size-fits-all for this. So I wouldn't try looking for the answer. There is no the answer. Most of these kids, the majority of these kids, roughly two-thirds, but certainly not all, uh, are going to turn out to be cis, but gay or lesbian. So of the kids who are prepubescent, the majority of them will be gay or lesbian. If they're still by 12 and 13 years old, it would be reasonable to start considering puberty-blocking hormones by then. Of the kids who first start expressing transgender needs during teenage years after puberty, usually at 13, 14, 15, these kids are usually confused about gender, but usually they're exploring sexual orientation, and for them, their sexual orientation is highly mixed with gender. The rapid onset gender dysphoria. Dr. Lisa Littman at Brown University. Exactly. She was the first one who, who labeled it and was able to identify it. For the 50 years before that, there were just early onset people who came into clinics as children and the uh, late onset people who came in essentially in middle adulthood in their 40s and 50s. should say that that latter group, from my layperson's anecdotal perspective, the ones who, say, leave their family in the 40s and proclaim themselves trans, seem to be perhaps overrepresented on the vocal end of the spectrum. Yes, they're practically all of it. That's not an allusion to anybody, to anybody who is aware of the different kinds of things that motivate people to want trans this is this is not news and i have heard that it is connected in some way to issues of sexual attraction but it sounds like that area of study has been stigmatized it's practically radioactive now i I can easily understand where the activists are coming from it's a much more palatable narrative to say that you know wrong sex brain born into wrong body with that kind of a story everybody in society knows how to treat you or at least Anybody following that rule will be treating the trans person exactly the way that the trans person wants. To acknowledge, however, that there is a uh, kink element to it or an erotic arousal to it, now it all of a sudden it's not as sympathy begetting. Let's talk about the radioactive elephant in the room, which is, I believe, what is clinically described as autogynephilia. And autogynephilia, again, I'm a layperson, that's when somebody has sexual attractions that are associated with the idea of themselves. Feminized versions of themselves. And the idea here is that you have a man who... Mostly attracted to women, girlfriends, wives. But in order to reconcile a straight sexual attraction to the autogynephilic impulse, seeks to transform himself into what, at least for aesthetic purposes or social purposes, is a woman. 
I don't know that this is true. I know that this is a controversial area, but it strikes me as strangely Victorian and regressive that we're not allowed to talk about it in the same way we weren't allowed to talk about homosexuality a hundred years ago. Is there a certain regressive aspect to not wanting to talk about the possibility of autogonophilia being a vector for certain kinds of trans presentation? No, I don't think so. I, I think it's motivated in a uh, in a very different way because a lot of these people will still be very open about other kinds of kinks that they have. They will be supportive, very, very supportive of other people with other kinds of kinks. Do you have clients who come in and are very open about their what some people call autogynephilia, but in a way that's compartmentalized from gender? They just say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a 45-year-old. I'm turned on by myself. And they, and they talk about that, but in a context that has nothing to do with gender? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, people with autogynephilia are, you know, have the regular range of mental health things that a person without autogynephilia has. Do women get autogynephilia? No. Weird. To me, that's not weird. That's a clue. Go on. Practically all of the paraphilias, except maybe for masochism, they're a phenomenon of the male brain. They really only happen to males. Why are we so screwed up? Again, to me, that's a clue. So what is it about the male brain that happens that doesn't happen to the female brain? I don't know. The masculinization process itself. Testosterone. All brains start as female. They don't start to differentiate until week 10 to 12 is when, you know, various Y chromosome proteins kick in, testosterone kicks in. Exactly. So if something goes wrong during the masculinization process, we get a male with a slightly atypical masculinization. But no female would show this because that process doesn't happen in females. This is so enlightening in regard to myself. I feel I should give you my health card. <laughs> James Cantor, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. My pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.